Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and today we are talking politics, specifically environmental politics, as my guests are both involved in helping shape the passage of two important pieces of parliamentary legislation. Caroline Lucas was first elected to Parliament in 2010 as MP for Brighton Pavilion and has held the seat ever since. A passionate champion of the environment, she is currently the Green Party's only Member of Parliament. Caroline, it's an enormous pleasure to welcome you to Planet Pod and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be with you. My second guest, while not a politician, is no stranger to campaigning for better environmental legislation. Dr Richard Benwell has been on both sides of the bill drafting process, a senior advisor at DEFRA before he left to take up his role as chief executive of Wildlife and Countryside Link, where he now campaigns to make sure that political turmoil doesn't, in his words, shake our resolve to create a better environment for everyone. Richard, it's lovely to have you back on Planet Pod. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me again, Amanda. Hi. It's a really important time for the environment in politics, isn't it, Caroline? And, and here we are nearly four months into post-Brexit and at a point where we're looking at a, a post-COVID green recovery. And yet things don't seem much cheerier on the environmental political front. Um, but, but you and your colleagues have been sponsoring the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill, the CEE Bill. Tell us, why is that so important? What is it exactly? Okay, thanks. So the CEE bill, it's a bit of a, a mouthful, but essentially what it is, is a way of both updating our current climate legislation, making it fit for purpose for, for where we are now. Uh, it also offers us the opportunity of joining up climate and nature policy, because right now we don't have that kind of joined up thinking. And it also has an element of a citizens assembly so that this is about policies being made by people rather than being done to people. And to kind of explain why it's needed, the 2008 Climate Change Act really was pioneering when it was first introduced. And interestingly, it started life as a private member's bill uh, three years before it was finally passed. So in 2005, the late and very wonderful Michael Meacher, a Labour politician, Labour minister later, he introduced it first of all, and then it gathered momentum and finally became the Climate Change Act that we now know that governs our legislation today. And while it was pioneering at its time, it has some big gaps. So for example, it doesn't take into account the emissions that are emitted through the products that we import. And so often you'll hear the British government say how wonderful we're doing because we reduced our emissions by uh, over 40% since 1990, we're doing better than everyone else. Well, one of the reasons that we can say that is because we've outsourced a huge number of our emissions to countries like China, because we've outsourced our manufacturing. They do all of the manufacturing in China. We import the products back. And yet the, the cost, if you like, of those emissions go on their accounts, not on ours. So first of all, it would incorporate those imported emissions, the consumption emissions. It would also incorporate the emissions associated with aviation and shipping. International aviation and shipping are some of the fastest growing sources of greenhouse gas emissions. But because it was deemed too complicated to work out how to attribute them back in 2008, they were just simply left out. And we're saying that's not good enough. And also this bill, I think, takes a much stronger account of the kind of climate justice arguments, recognizing that the UK has historically been one of the worst emitters because we've been doing it longer than most. We started the industrial revolution and therefore Historically, we have a greater responsibility to go further and faster, certainly further and faster than net zero by 2050, which, as you'll know, is, is the government's target right now. So on the climate front, what we want to do is to update 
the 2008 Climate Change Act, make it fit for purpose for today. As I say, put in as well those links to nature, to uh, environmental protection, and make sure that when you look at the, the crises that we face, we, we do it in a joined up way, recognizing that there's a climate crisis, but there's also a nature crisis. The UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. We are off track to meet many of our biodiversity targets, just as we are sadly off track to meet our, our climate change budgets, the fourth and fifth climate budget, we are off track to meet. So this would be a kind of joined up piece of legislation and would enable us, I think, to, to, to have a much more effective impact when it comes to trying to protect our environment. That was really, really helpful. Thank you. But it does sound quite ambitious because we've talked on this podcast before about the climate change budget, which we consistently failed to meet. And we've talked about, you know, the need for better environmental legislation. And we talk a lot about carbon emissions and the various sources of emissions, the various sources of capturing those emissions. You've put a lot into this bill. You've made it really, really meaty. Do you think having all of those things together is going to help its passage or might it hinder its passage? Because, I mean, you mentioned the Climate Change Act, but notoriously private members' bills don't get passed into legislation, do they? They have to do the rounds for a very long time before they become government legislation. So, so do you think having such a rich bill is going to make it more appealing to people to support it? Or, or might people say, well, there's just too much in here, I can buy into some of it, but not other bits of it? Well, I, I hope that people will see that it's an integrated bill. So hopefully it's not a, so, a so-called Christmas tree bill where you have everybody just kind of attaching their most favourite policy to an existing bill. It, it is entirely joined up. Essentially, it's saying we need to take responsibility for our impact. That, mm. that, that's the bottom line of this bill. And, and yes, that does mean aviation and shipping and consumption emissions. And yes, it does mean making sure that we don't have climate policies that undermine our nature policies or, or vice versa. But essentially, I could have said it as, as simply as that. And, and in retrospect, perhaps I should have done because, because it is, in one sense, extremely simple. It's about saying net zero by 2050 is just taking far too many risks. The UK in particular is more responsible than most for the historic emissions in our atmosphere. And therefore, we need to go further and faster than most. And this is a framework that would enable us to do that. We've got MPs supporting it. We've got about 110 MPs so far supporting it not yet from the Conservative Party, but from all the other parties. And momentum is growing. We've got businesses, charities, NGOs, legal experts. You know, there is a real kind of momentum behind the bill. And I take your point. You're right that lots of private members' bills don't make it over the line into legislation, but, but quite a few do. And I think the moment that we're at right now, coming out of this COVID crisis, I think one of the lessons from that is that when the political will is there, governments can act fast. You know, no longer can a government get away with saying, oh, it's too difficult, we can't afford it. You know, the government has just wiped out NHS debt overnight, 13 billion just went down the drain, no one even noticed it, it was, it was written off. The government has been housing the homeless, they have been paying people's salaries not to be at work. We would never have imagined that a couple of years ago. And yet, when there's that collective recognition of an emergency, we have demonstrated, the government has demonstrated it can act and I think there's no going back from that position now. Yeah, it's shown it can, but whether it will or not is a different question, isn't it? Richard, your organisation brings together lots of key voices in the environmental ecological movement. Where do you stand on the bill? Obviously, I'm assuming you're a supporter, but how, are you, how do you feel about it? Do you think he's got a chance of getting through? And what are your thoughts and feelings about it? 
so many great campaigns were started with a, a private member's bill. And even if in that first moment when uh, the idea comes forward as a private member's bill, the bill itself doesn't pass, they're often the kernel of a piece of legislation that then appears a, a year or two down the line, or the core is grabbed out of it by government and taken forward in a piece of government's own legislation. So I think it's a fantastic proposal for doing more than setting our, our own net zero target, but actually embedding that idea of doing our part to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. And as Caroline says, that means we have to think about consumption-based emissions, about aviation and shipping, and we have to do it in a way that uh, looks after nature as well as looks after big industrial emissions. So I don't know what the fate of this bill will be. We're coming to the end of parliamentary session, so it's got uh, some procedural hurdles in its way. But I hope that what it will do is really rally that sense of energy that we feel out in the public at the moment uh, and help show government that the appetite to go further and stronger is, is really there. And the critical part that Caroline mentioned around citizens' assembly, around bringing people with you, is so important. Because you see, if governments race ahead without undertaking that dialogue and, and getting people invested in the solutions, sometimes you face a backlash. And that's another feature of the bill. I hope when the government listens and responds to this call to action, it will carry forward as well uh, so that that real genuine appetite for change in all parts of society is, is brought along to ensure that we meet our climate goals in a way that works for folks. The other piece of legislation that's on the table at the moment is the Environment Bill, and that's at a different stage in its life. But that started with a similar campaign. Caroline was uh, one of the sponsors of a motion at Green Party conference many years ago calling for uh, something that closely resembled the Environment Bill, setting legally binding targets for nature's recovery. That was, what, five or six years ago, Caroline? Yeah, yeah exactly, it was. Uh, and at that time, it didn't hit the headlines. It wasn't uh, something that anybody thought would ever come to pass. But that campaigning momentum that came from Green Party, from NGOs, from one or two really strong champions in every political party has built and built. And it's the reason why we have an environment bill before us today. So whatever happens to the CE bill now, I think it will make a really powerful difference and help us to tackle climate and ecological emergency. It's certainly been a focus, hasn't it, for people to, to rally around. I mean, the organisations that signed up to the alliance that are supporting it are, are very widespread and they include, as you said, corporate organisations. But there's one or two things in the bill that I can't get my head around. I mean, one of them, I guess, particularly is about the nature-based solutions and carbon capture and storage. And it's strange to me because a lot of the work that I do outside of the podcast is with, with big organisations and they spend a lot of time talking about their scope three. So they're, they're concerned about their supply chain and analysing the emissions of their supply chain. So we absolutely, as a country, should be doing that. We should be looking at our emissions genuinely, not just the ones that we produce here, but those ones that you said we outsource. But there's going to be a point at which we can't reduce some emissions, so we're going to have to offset, as we call it. We're going to have to capture it, aren't we, and, and have sinks. And nature-based sinks, places where we can sequester carbon, are really important. But I'm surprised to see that there's less support in the bill for, for technological solutions. And, you know, I know some of those are as yet unproven. But over the last year or so, we've had a lot of guests from a whole range of backgrounds who've been working in the innovative clean tech sector who are trying to find solutions that they think might help us to mitigate the impact of the carbon. Why is it that the bill is so reluctant to support some of those non-nature-based solutions? 
But I think the first thing that the bill does is to say that the best thing to do is to reduce emissions at source. And I think there's a very big worry that for some politicians out there, it's very convenient to think that we can actually continue with business as usual. And then we'll just hope that some technological fix will come along and take the carbon out of the atmosphere. And therefore, we don't have to change behavior. We don't have to change production and consumption patterns. We carry on in our own sweet way. And I think there's just such a danger around that um, assumption, because I I can't imagine quite what kind of of level of technological uh, innovation you would need to have. But it is such a big risk to run to think that you could do that. Uh, And it also doesn't sound very equitable either. So I think there's a a healthy skepticism about saying, hang on a minute, we can't let this be a get out of jail free card. We have to reduce emissions at source. So that's the first thing we say. The second thing we say is that because there are so many win-wins, as long as you do it right with nature-based solutions, why wouldn't you make sure that you stop burning peatlands, that you put the right trees in the right place and, and store carbon in that way too? So essentially when we come to the technological solutions we're not saying that we're against all of them but we are saying that we don't want to rely on what is often as yet unproven at scale at least technologies to deal with a problem that if they get it wrong the the risks are so high that that we would be putting life on this planet at serious risk so i think it's a, a healthy skepticism and saying there are things we can do first reduce the emission first of all nature based solutions second and yes, there may well be some requirement for technological solutions, but let's not bet the family silver on thinking that it's all going to work because we don't think it will. So that's really a way of pushing people to say, actually, you can't just offset your way out of this problem. You've right. got to reduce. We've, if we're, you know, we're going to get as close to zero as we can. We've got to reduce emissions and drive them down from all of the different sources. So we recognise that for aluminium, for example, and steel, cement, you know, there are, there are certain sectors where it will be harder to uh, reduce emissions at source. And that's why there will be some need for some kind of technology. But as I say, we want to have it under very, very strict conditions. Richard? I thought I'd jump in with something you might not expect me to say at this point, which is we also need to maintain a healthy scepticism about the amount of nature-based sequestration there is out there too. Uh, Mm. And that point that we need to reduce emissions first is absolutely vital because there are dollar signs appearing in the eyes of um, folk who've been desperate for cash for nature for a long time because the biodiversity crisis has been so um, funding starved. But we mustn't rush to taking climate finance to uh, create offsets and nature-based solutions in a way that actually reduces the pressure to mitigate emissions in the first place. Uh, and there's a worry that as we leave the EU, the government will amend its emissions trading system to allow nature-based offsets to take the place of emissions reduction for big industry. And that would be a fatal flaw on our route to getting on a trajectory that's compatible with 1.5 degrees C. So absolutely, we need loads of cash for blue carbon. We need cash for uh, broadleaf native woodlands, for wetlands, for peatland restoration. But that's to stop damage first and foremost uh, and can't come uh, in a way that allows industrial emissions to continue. So our starting point would be that We should never include land use in the emissions trading system when it's amended so that you can't start swapping off nature for industrial emissions. And that when you do have uh, sales of nature-based solutions, those should only be to organisations that have a third party verified 
net zero plan of their own. So you're only selling them to organizations that have a credible plan in place to deal with those really hard to mitigate emissions at the end of the journey. We're looking at this as a sector because we know we need to be responsible about who we sell to uh, and the quality of those nature-based solutions that we're providing. So there's a healthy scepticism about that in the bill as well. And I think that's something that we all need to be mindful of as we leave the EU and as this question of how to make the ETS emissions trading system work evolves. And that's absolutely key as well, isn't it? Because there isn't physically enough nature-based space for us to offset the amount of emissions we've got anyway, is there? I think, you know, was it was it one of the large oil companies, and I can't remember if it was Shell or BP, thought they might offset all their emissions and they required two Brazil's worth of trees. It's Shell. My producers told me it was definitely Shell. Two Brazil's worth of space to offset emissions. Now, we haven't got two Brazil's worth of space for this. And, and we need to protect those, those environments that you've just described, Richard, the wetlands and the moorlands and the peat bogs, it, it, for their own sakes, in fact, don't we? Because they are enormously important as biodiversity habitats. They aren't just a way of trading off our carbon. And people listening to this might not know what an offset is. I mean, an offset is a way of if you like saying this is the amount of emissions I've generated and I'm going to, to compensate for them by you know supporting a scheme that will absorb carbon. So, so actually we should be supporting those areas because they need our support and they're vital to the health of the planet, not as part of a carbon scheme, shouldn't we really? And that's a perfect example of why we need to do nature and climate, give them equal weight. The reason that we're turning so readily to climate cash is because the biodiversity crisis isn't being taken with much seriousness as the climate emergency. Uh, And so there's a lot of corporate and a lot of government money out there to support climate action. uh, And that becomes the only lens through which you see habitat restoration. But, you know, planting a tree is brilliant for its own sake. We shouldn't be just looking for the, (laughs) the fastest growing tree to gobble up as much carbon as we uh, as we can we should be thinking about the ecosystem that it creates and we should be investing public and private mm. money in that too and when we get onto the environment bill that's the point of having an equivalent of net zero for nature in law uh, we're trying to say that there should be a legally binding target to halt the decline of biodiversity and that will drive the kind of investment in nature that we've started to enjoy on the climate side because of that need to meet a target in law. And I think Richard really points to something so important, which is that when it comes to nature and biodiversity, it feels like they've been the, the poor cousin when it comes to the legislative framework. You know, again and again, for example, even just now, you know, we keep talking about the COP, the Conference of Parties, the meeting mm-hmm. in Glasgow. Actually, there's a meeting before the climate COP, which is the biodiversity COP, the, the, yeah. the, the Conference of the Parties to the Biodiversity Convention in Kunming, which is also massively important, plus exactly as Richard said, and and what the the Sea Bill does, you need to bring nature and climate together. And so what we're arguing that the government should do is to look at these two big meetings together, you know, make sure that the policy proposals that you're taking into the Kunming Biodiversity Summit are also compatible with and build on your plans at the the climate uh, meeting thereafter. And one other just quick thing I wanted to say about, you know, the danger of, of thinking that you know, Shell could uh, buy up two, two Brazil's worth of space to, to plant its trees or whatever, is that there's a really important climate justice issue here because far too often companies in the global north think that they're going to be able to continue business as usual by recolonizing whole swathes of the global south with very little interest in what they might want to do with their land. Um, and there, there really is a kind of human-based justice issue here and, and, and one that should be addressed. Absolutely. Incredibly important. Can we talk a little bit about the Environment Bill? 
where is it at the moment? It has it stalled slightly, Richard? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, isn't this this kind of a pattern, isn't it? It stalls. It has stalled once or twice before. And is it going to be enough? Because I, I know we had really strong European-based legislation, didn't we? That that kept our polluters under control and it actually kept us up to scratch. And and the environment bill is replacing some of that, but some of the legislation is not as is not as strong, or have I mis misread that? Some of it is a bit watered down, is that right? Yes. So the Environment Bill was born out of this Brexit moment where we had to fill the gap left by the European Courts and Commission. And uh, that governance gap forced the government's hand, really, in bringing forward a bit of legislation to offer that kind of access to environmental justice. Um, and there the government's done some things right, but there are some big failings too. So they, they haven't moved across the environmental principles in law in a way that gives them direct effect in UK law. They haven't given the Office for Environmental Protection um, the access it needs to really powerful legal remedies to punish infringement of environmental law by government. And they haven't yet guaranteed it the funding and independence it needs to act well. But that that bit, that Brexit bit, filling those gaps is only half of what the bill should be about. As I hinted at before, we needed it anyway to come forward and bring powerful new legislation for nature's recovery. And there, again, the government sort of got halfway. It's promised these legally binding targets for air, water, waste and wildlife. But not a single target will be set before October 2022. We have no idea how ambitious those targets will be or which areas they will cover. And not a single deadline for those targets will be sooner than the end of 2037. So while it's a good idea to have some powerful biodiversity and uh, nature targets in law, as it stands, that critical moment of, of international diplomacy as we come to these global talks for nature's recovery will have come and gone by the time the government gets around to setting its targets. And it's going to do them quietly through statutory instruments. So it won't have the kind of parliamentary input that we need to make sure they're ambitious enough. And that's why, that's why as a sector, we're calling for a state of nature target on the face of the bill, a sort of one target to rule them all, a single target for biodiversity to halt the loss of biodiversity and habitats by 2030. And we think that would be the kind of unifying goal that can drive investment, government action and private sector uh, activity in the next 10 years in a way that can genuinely help us to live up to that bold aspiration of finally turning around long-term decline in the state of nature. And that was a very long way of saying the bill is indeed delayed again. But don't worry, <laughs> it's coming back and it's going to be right before the cops. And if the government doesn't take action, it will be very embarrassing if it's saying at COP it's going to halt nature's decline by 2030, but not putting it in law in this country. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm Evershed Sutherland. Forgive me for being sceptical, but is there a real appetite for climate and dealing with the crisis and understanding the environment in Parliament, Caroline? Because it doesn't feel as if many of our parliamentarians with, you know, the group supporting your bill accepted really either get this or care about it. I think I would challenge that a little bit, actually. I mean, they don't get the full picture of quite how urgent it is, nor how joined up we need to be. And if I had a big criticism, it would be that too many of them think that you can... Con 
you know, you can you can deal with the environment in an environment bill, and the Treasury can continue in its own sweet way without having to pay any attention to it. So there's there's a massive amount of work to be done in terms of joining that up. Um, one of the amendments that I put to the environment bill was actually around alternative metrics when it comes to measuring success. So for as long as we've got a an economic system that measures success purely in terms of GDP, gross domestic product, then, then we're not going to be able to push the priorities that, that we desperately need for a thriving population uh, on a thriving planet. So I, I don't want to say that I think that you know there's suddenly been a, a, a Damascene conversion of the House of Commons. That, that, that hasn't. But having said that, 110 MPs so far on this bill from six different political parties isn't bad. Um, there have certainly been some Conservative MPs who've been putting forward quite helpful uh, amendments. Neil Parrish, for example, the chair of the Agriculture Committee, has been doing some good stuff when it comes to forestry. So, so I think there's a greater appetite than you would think. And to be honest, although the Tory backbenchers perhaps couldn't speak out about it as much as they might have wanted to, I really sensed that when the Environment Minister took this bill off the table again and said, actually, sorry, folks, we're going to stop it and not bring it back till after the Queen's speech, I think there was a lot of anger about that on all sides of the House. I think people do want to see that we've got a uh, a strong piece of environmental legislation, not least because they get lobbied about it. We know people really care about this stuff. And what was really interesting to me, going back, if I might, just for a second, to citizens' assemblies, which we were just discussing is a, an important part of the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill. Every time you have a citizens' assembly on climate or nature, they come up with policies that are far more ambitious than, than government. And in a sense, government should welcome that because it gives them license, it gives them permission, if you like, to be far more uh, progressive themselves. And the more we can give voice to ordinary people's uh, aspirations and, and concerns, the more likely we are, I think, to be pushing this agenda forward. I'm part of an environmental justice commission that was set up by um, IPPR, the Institute for um, uh, Public Policy Research. Um, and we've been doing five or six of these citizens' juries all around the country, particularly in places like Thurrock or Aberdeen or, or Tees Valley, places where there's going to be a real pressure on people to make a transition out of high carbon into low carbon and zero carbon ways forward. And, and especially actually in places like that, there is a real appetite for government leadership, for them to put in place the ingredients for a, a green and fair and sustainable future. So again, another long answer, but I think I think there's a there's a lot more appetite in the country as a whole for movement in this in this direction. And therefore, I think we will finally see a bit more movement in Parliament too. I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's huge appetite in the country and, you know, listeners to the podcast are telling us this all the time, but but there is a bit of a lacuna when it comes to, to leadership at the top within the government, isn't there? I can't turn around and my hand and my heart point to things that I see the current government doing to support a really true green recovery from COVID, for example, or to support a decarbonisation of the economy because because the legislation isn't there and the instruments aren't there. You know, take the Green Grant, for example, you know, heralded as being a way to help restore some of those climate justice issues, restore equity around energy, allow people to insulate their homes or possibly install alternative energies. Withdrawn on a Saturday night, overnight, no noise, 94% of the grant has not been given out. It's just one of many examples where there's talk, but there doesn't seem to be any real action. We're passionate about it. People in the country are passionate about it. You're passionate about it. How do we break through to actually make that change? Because if I look to our European neighbours, it looks to me that they're taking emphasis on the climate and the green recovery from COVID much more seriously than we are in, in other parts of, of, of Europe. That, is that permission to talk about the electoral system and how the yes, green... Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. We're not in Purdy yet. Go ahead. <laughs> well, oh, but 
notice that those countries that are doing better when it comes to environmental uh, policy are ones where they have a fairer voting system and where there are more Greens in government uh, and, and in Parliament. Uh, and therefore, there's this consistent pressure all the time so that you can't get away with forgetting this stuff. And I do think that really makes a difference. Now, obviously, we need to get strong environmental policy more quickly than it might take us to get electoral reform. So we do need to think of a plan B in terms of bringing people's voices to bear. But that I'm sorry to bang on about it, but I do think citizens' assemblies in that respect really do have an important role to play because I think they can demonstrate to politicians that there is a that, that there is no electoral loss or, or risk, in a sense, for, for being more ambitious in this area as long as they design the policies in a in a, in a fair um, and considered way and and consult along the line as they as they do so. Richard, I, I can see itching to say something. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, only that only that there is still hope. Uh, and there are enough things in in play that the government could still pull it out of the bag. So there are some massive Everybody changes. optimist. <laughs> well, uh, things like agricultural reform could make a really positive difference if the government sticks to the rhetoric that it's set out. So, for example, on the way that we use that three billion pounds of investment that we put into our countryside each year, that's a huge opportunity to take money that comes out of your pocket and my pocket and goes into the uh, into land managers' pockets to make it work more for nature and for people. And if genuinely we use that money to reward farmers who go above a regulatory baseline to invest in nature, then it could be transformative. At the moment, the jury's out on whether the government is actually going to live up to what it said. It keeps saying that that money is now going to go towards nature, but some of the early proposals for things like the sustainable farming incentive look very much like business as usual. Um, and similarly on things like marine protected areas and this great promise of uh, 30 by 30, so protecting 30% of the land and sea for nature by 2030, these are good words. Uh, and I don't want to be too damning until we've seen the the conclusion. Um, <laughs> but just take the farming element, Richard. I mean, we had some farmers on the podcast recently, James Rebanks, you may know, and um, and, and Sarah Westerhouse, who's a farmer in Essex and, you know, a mixed arable farm. They've been doing environmentally friendly farming for years. They've had stewardship schemes. They've got wild margins. They've got areas of set aside for bird populations. They're not ploughing. They're doing all of these things. But they tell me that the new payment schemes will actually mean that they won't be able to do them because they've been paid up to now for doing them. They've either got to stop doing them and then apply for a new scheme, or they won't be rewarded for doing the good things they're already doing. And, and you know, there isn't enough money in the system for many of those farmers to make ends meet just by farming even remotely sustainably. You know, they've had to diversify. Sarah's got 24,000 hens in her backyard. They've had to do things because the schemes that were there supporting stewardship are good, but the new schemes are just not going to work. And if they can't make it pay, they'll have to stop and give up and do something else. And we all know what will happen to that land. It'll be built on. So, so there's a real tension there, isn't there, in the system about making, supporting farmers and, and those who want to protect wildlife and do the right things and actually allowing people to make a living. There is. And I don't think we know enough yet. So um, lots of agri-environment schemes that are currently active will be rolled over. So we are starting to get the right assurances that people who are in the scheme now will be able to transition into the new scheme without hiccup, which is good. The real question is how much of the money will go on to measures that don't really add value. So um, 
for basic rotations, for simple husbandry, for you know, not doing vertical ploughing. These are things that all farmers should be doing. And if too much money is gobbled up on that, then there won't be enough left for the real rebanks of this world to, to go above and beyond. And the, the detail is, is, is what matters, obviously. You're, we mustn't reward farmers just for having soil carbon. All farmers have got soil carbon. The question is, are you managing your land in a way that enriches that carbon and adds to it rather than just doing the basics? So we need government to be brave now and say, we're asking farmers to do something really special here to completely change the model that we've been expecting of them to produce more and more food for 50 years. And we're going to pay them generously when they do things that are genuinely above and beyond, ideally more than three billion pounds a year, let's double it, what the heck. But those who don't meet that regulatory baseline need to feel the pinch and regulations and enforcement and polluter pays needs to apply in their farmed environment just as much as it does for other types of business. But that message of bravery to really pay for those guys mm. who do the landscape scale change or do agroforestry or do regenerative farming, they've got to be really rewarded because we're asking them to change a lifestyle as well as provide an essential public good in environmental recovery. And how do we protect those that are doing it? I mean, I have to, we have to talk about NEP because we, you know, we've had Izzy on the programme in the past and we've spent some time at NEP and we all love the rewilding idea in large scale or small scale. And I know NEP has its critics, but it is held up as being, you know, one of the great successes in terms of a rewilded space that's built up over the last 18 years. And yet now it's possible that it will be under concrete as a local developer puts in a proposal forward for building homes. I mean, how do we protect those spaces that are so important to so many people and have proved so important during COVID when people have needed wild spaces more than ever? How do we do that, Caroline? Well, just a word about NEP. I mean, I think they really have demonstrated the the, the, the proof of concept around rewilding and, and what they've been able to do there has just been such... Um, just such a beacon of inspiration you know I've been there and I've, I've, I've heard the nightingales and seen the storks and 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 it is extraordinary but as you say it depends on not just being a little island of of nature flourishing but being joined up in nature corridors and there is this real threat as you say of that being stopped by the council and land instead being turned into housing and so forth and I think it's a, it's a story really that that just encapsulates the problem with with this siloed thinking, with this lack of joined up thinking, which is exactly what, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, we're trying to address with the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill by putting nature and climate together and making politicians look at the connections between them. But in the meantime, you know, I think we just need to absolutely raise voices as, as, as loud as we can to say that this must not be allowed to happen. And if we had a planning system worth its salt, we would have a better chance of being able to hear those voices and to be able to understand what trade-offs might be being proposed and to being able to object to them. And I worry deeply that we've got a government that is taking democratic power out of our planning system and making it harder for people's voices to be heard and more of it actually being driven in a centralised fashion from Westminster. Whereas what we need is, is, is a more democratic planning system where voices can be heard. And, and, and I think most people would absolutely recognise that, that NEP is bringing something extraordinary to, to our landscape and to our nature. And it needs to be protected, expanded, learnt from, replicated. It, it would be a real tragedy if this was allowed to mm. be solved. And for many people, the equivalent of their NEP may be the little bit of scrubland 
at the bottom of the street, which is in itself a biodiverse habitat. And we, we, we've been to Swanscombe Marshes on the programme when we've looked at that, what looks like industrial wasteland, which is such an important site for, for birds, migratory birds and for jumping spiders. And so it doesn't have to be as picture postcard perfect as NEP is, wonderful though NEP is. It could be somewhere quite small and in, you know, not necessarily particularly distinguished, which is still providing a vital habitat. That's at risk, isn't it? Because of the way the planning system works and because of the, the we don't have sufficient protections in our system to make sure those spaces are kept wild, if you like, for, for, for migratory populations, even if it's insects or pollinators. You're so there's so much more we can do. Absolutely. And often, often places that aren't necessarily the most picturesque can, can, quite often host far greater biodiversity than something that looks very picturesque, but actually is dependent on quite a lot of pesticides to have got itself looking in, in that particular way. So again, uh, as you say, post-COVID, I think people have really recognised just how important green space is to their own physical health, to their mental health, and as well as trying to protect existing spaces. And I just give a shout out to an organisation like Fields in Trust, who I think do excellent work in, in working alongside communities to help them protect those areas. But what I would like to see and what I've been trying to um, introduce into Parliament would be a right to green space for all new developments so that there's, you know, people talk about these 15 minute neighbourhoods or, or whatever, mm -hmm. but areas where in any new housing development, you automatically build in the green space right from the start and the access to it. And you make sure that people don't have to get in their cars to get to the services that they need and that they do have that green space more or less on their doorstep. Love that you got the uh, jumping spiders in there, Amanda, and then <laughs> and then not particularly distinguished. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> you know they are distinguished. Sorry, jumping spiders, you're very precious. <laughs> um, Richard, what would be your call to action? Because we've got we have got COP coming up. We've got the bills in Parliament. People do want to make their voices heard, and citizens' assemblies are absolutely vital. They sometimes we can't all participate in them because of naturally the way they they come about. Perhaps you know gathering in the street protesting on behalf of nature is going to be less easy in the future than it's been up till now. And we wonder if we will get exile back in the way that we've had them before. But so what can people do to make their voices heard? What can the average citizen do to, to make sure that the government takes notice and that we get the legislation we need and we get the protection we need from the planet? Richard? Just just a very quick word to endorse what you were saying about planning, uh, first of all, if I may we as conservationists love to draw rings around things and designate sites uh, and that's done us quite well in the past but I think about eight percent of England is de designated as triple SI and of that we only know the condition of a small tiny amount and it misses out amazing places like NEP or that scrub down the, the road those vital stepping stones and corridors that link up the crown jewels and instead of these proposals that have come out of MHCLG for zonal planning where they proposed three areas of growth, restoration and protection, which in fact allowed more houses everywhere and afforded no additional protection to nature. Instead of doing that, we should be reshaping the planning system so that it recognises the need to link up our vital habitats uh, and allow places for genuine environmental restoration, as well as um, uh, protecting the wonderful assets that we've already got in place. So if there were the sort of link up across Whitehall that we need, then it would have been DEFRA driving the planning reform agenda and coming back and saying, planning isn't just about housing numbers, it's about making the land do what we need it to do. And that means food, it means biodiversity, and it means affordable houses for everybody. So I hope when this planning legislation comes later in the year, you guys will be right onto it with some proposals for environmental planning reform that puts... Yeah 
the sustainability back in sustainable development. But call to action on the state of nature. First of all, please sign our petition. There's a petition going for a state of nature target to get that uh, vital target to halt nature's decline by 2030 in law in the Environment Bill. 125,000 people have already signed it. All of the big environmental NGOs are behind it. And we've got some amazing supporters from other sectors, corporate sector, mental health organizations. Uh, your voice really can make a difference when it comes to landing this petition on Mr. Johnson's desk saying, if you're going to talk about it internationally, do it at home. You can't make international agreements to halt nature's decline by 2030 unless you have it in law in the UK. So please sign the petition, please write to your MP, and let's make sure that that legislation gives us the domestic credibility to genuinely be world leaders on biodiversity recovery. Richard, where can people find the petition to sign up? Please go to the Wildlife and Countryside Link website, www.wcl.org.uk. Caroline, you've got a call to action too. I was just going to say that when people have got their pens out or, or on their keyboards, signing up to that petition, which I, I warmly recommend that they do, uh, could they also write to their MPs asking their MPs to put their name on the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill? Um, they could also write to their local councillors to see if their local council might adopt a resolution, a motion, uh, again, in support of, of this bill. We've got a number of councils that have already done that. We know that lots of councils have already passed climate emergency bills, and then you get, kind of get the sense that quite a lot of councils aren't quite sure what to do next. Well, what they need to do next is to say, yes, there is an emergency, and the kind of action that we need is exactly the joined up nature and climate action, which is at the heart of the climate and ecological emergency bill. Caroline, how can people sign up to support the bill? Thank you. They can go to the website www.ceebill.uk, and you can find all of the information there. And they can join the Alliance, which is um, Please join, join and put your voices there. Thank you both so much. I'm so sad we ran out of time. We could have gone on for a, another hour at least. So a huge thank you to my guests, Caroline Lucas and Richard Benwell. Thank you so much for being part of Planet Pod today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you so much. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. You can subscribe to the podcast. So we just drop into your inbox whenever there's a new podcast out. Um, or you can find us at theplanetpod.com. Do please tweet or Instagram your comments and your feedback. We love to hear from you. And a huge thank you to all for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.